Our reading this morning is from Genesis 2, 18 to 24. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not one found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Grace and Peace Church. If I haven't met you, I am Vincent Hoppy. I'm the pastor. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask me, meet me, whatever. And uh, otherwise, I have a couple quick announcements. If you have a membership interview, it will be right after this service. And so if you receive that email, we'd love to, love to uh, have, you, have you and then we'd uh, um, interview you that way. Also... Another announcement, if you have questions, especially about the book of Genesis, and especially about today's section of text, uh, especially regarding things like LGBTQ issues, where where does grace and peace stand, what do you guys talk about, where does this come from, the Bible, uh, and then also talking about like biological sex, gender, different things like that. We are going to be at Goat Patch Brewery at 4 p.m. I'll try to get there a little early. I will lay myself across a bar table and reserve some seats. Um, And I'll just, you know, drink a root beer like that and just say, hey, this seat's taken. Uh, That'll be my my afternoon and we'd love love to spend some time with you. But we take up a serious issue here, and an issue that maybe for our age we need to think more deeply about, and it's a question that maybe Rachel Den- Denhollander, who turned in a, uh, a doctor for sexual assault, who's assaulting young ladies, we, we need to take this up, and she asks, you know, what is, a, what is a little girl worth? She takes up that question, and I thought about this a number of years ago, of, of ma- what is our stories about this world, how does that inform how we value women in their dignity, and then also how in the world uh, do we see marriage rightly? So we have these questions. Uh, Vishal Mangawadi, he's an Indian doctor, he is a cultural commentator, he served the lower caste of India and has seen firsthand how our origin stories influence how we treat people how we value women, and what is uh, a good marriage, and what is marriage for. He tells in his story, the book uh, that made your world, about the story of Sheila. He writes, in 1976, Ruth and I left urban India to live with the rural poor outside the village of Gatharia. When we arrived, Ruth decided to visit every family in the village. Every day, she would visit a few families to find out how we could serve them. 
On one such visit, Ruth met Lata, Lata, a 10-year-old girl from a lower caste family. She asked Lata, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Four. Maybe three, she replied. Wait, is it four or three? Ruth was curious. Well, three. The, the fourth is almost dead, she said. May I see him? Um, if you're a little squirmish, it might be a good time to like cover your ears or something. But um, the child was, was a girl named Sheila. And in the middle of a windowless, dingy room, an 18-month-old living skeleton was lying on a bare string cot. Pus oozing from sores covering her body and head with flies swarming over her. She could not raise her head to chase them away. Her thighs were only as thick as an adult's thumb. Sheila was so weak she could not even cry. Upon pleading with the mother, Ruth uh, found out that they did not want to take her to the hospital because it would cost so much money. They didn't have time with all the family chores and all the work that needed to be done. They would lose more money. Ruth pleaded. She pleaded and offered to pay. And they reluctantly gave in when they realized that she wasn't going to turn them into the cops. Ruth nursed Sheila back to health. But then after returning Sheila back to her parents again, she found her on the brink of death just a few weeks later. Again, Ruth pleaded. The neighbors didn't even offer any support. They're like, that's her daughter. Why are you interrupting? What are you doing? You know, they would rather let the girl die than spend money and time to save her. They made a value judgment in their head about how much this girl was worth. Again, Ruth nursed her back to health, but when she was returned to her parents, her parents became very secretive, closed the doors and curtains, and let Sheila starve to death in secret. What is a woman worth? What is marriage for? What is our sexuality for? And all of our origin stories answer these questions vividly. You see, in that system, in the lower caste system, she wasn't worth much. And in fact, to them in that family, Sheila was just... You know, how much labor she could provide. All she did was vomit food, it says in the story. And so, I mean, we couldn't even count on her to do that. And so, it was better for her to die than become a liability to the family. Ancient contexts and cosmogenies of our stories, ancient contexts of cosmogenies, those are like really nerdy words. Uh, Cosmogony is an origin story. Uh, Many of them teach that women were created to serve men. Or maybe that women are a curse to men. In uh, our contemporary Western civilization, the story is that the male and female are products of natural selection, of evolution, unguided by any outside force. And so inevitably, we ought to then, right today, wrestle with the ethics of any creation story where women then are here would be the weaker sex and therefore to be conquered. They have no value outside of their ability to produce and be their ability to actually get certain things done. But we need to stop. And we need to ask the question, really? Is, is that what that's for? Is that what marriage is for? 
And this story gets the people to stop and think, and it was very countercultural uh, in, in their context at the time of, of what a woman was for. You see, today, they, they would be answering two questions. Like, there was a modernist way for women in marriage. There was a traditionalist way for women in marriage. And then what I would call the Bible's way for women in marriage. And we're going to explore all three. The modernist way, the modern views of feminism have kind of brought about many good things and things that can be commended and things that they share with Christianity. For instance, just and equitable pay, access to the same jobs, uh, voting rights, you know, uh, leadership in the workforce, paid maternity leave, uh, freedom from sexual harassment at work. These are good things. Those are good and just ends, but the means by which the modernist hopes to do this tends to be by proving that our differences between men and women are largely socially constructed. Oh, the differences, they're just socially constructed. You really don't need to know. You know what, what's really true is you need to focus on how equal men and women are, how similar they are, and how women could do the same job as men is often what comes up. And so our DNA... Our biological sex, they're not major factors in proving our differences or showing how they could be valuable. So the modern way focuses more on the similarity and equality of male and female and less so on the differences. Differences that make each gender distinct at times and maybe sometimes better at particular tasks, whether in the home or at church or in the office, those are glossed over because what is taught is uh, they could do the same thing. They're interchangeable, male and female. It doesn't really matter. Often the modern way to equality for women is to make men more, or women more like men. This happens because we're not thinking about it. No one ever really says that. You know, women should be more like men. No one ever says that, but we act like it. We default to that. We expect women to be as productive to conform, be as physically strong, be domineering. In the end, the value of a woman is determined more by their performance in this model, in the modern way. So the CEO is more valuable than any stay-at-home mom, of course. You know, they, they are better for the economy, is what is said. Ultimately, to some feminists, the basic traits and abilities of being a woman, the fact that you can have kids, you can nurture life, is seen not as something distinct and valuable, but it can be seen as a liability. And that's some of our biased thinking in this world. That just be, that you can become a mother is then now a liability. And that's sad. And I, I do not pretend to uh, think that I have been in a position of like where I could feel the weight of this this uh, thinking, where it's really come to where I had to wrestle with it, and so I will be sensitive and I need to be cautious. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. I don't know these things, but I know that there is a God who's gracious and still looks on you and loves you and cares for you. He knows these things. And he still wants to draw close to you. We wonder why we have a problem with gender today. Well, it's because uh, 
what we value or the value of a human being doesn't really have anything to do with our biological sex. We've disassociated the, uh, the two. Gender and biological sex don't really work together. Rather, gender is just socially constructed. You know, they're just products of our age. And then other people then, then shift off biological sex. Well, that's just incidental. And nowadays, we've even decided that that could be, you know, change it to whatever you want whatever you're most comfortable with, and I'll be even more careful here. I don't know what it's like to be an alien in my skin, to wrestle with that, to know that pain. But we know that God knows, and he's not squeamish about it. And so the saying goes in the modern, modern way. It says, anything you can do, I can do better. And so it focuses not on distinctions and distinctiveness in male and female, but on the similarities. And I think it's an unfortunate way, though, to gain equality. You know, we hope women will be just as valued as men by making them more like men. That's, that's weird. You see, the starting point of their story is wrong. You see, if value is determined by production or performance in living the good life, then there will not be equality. You see, if value is economic is based on economics, as value is based on economics, then your value will always be poor. If your value is always based on economics, then your value will be poor. But if it is like what the Bible says, you have intrinsic worth and value dignity from the onset, from the time you were conceived, because you were made male and female in his image, that even down to your DNA, you have worth value, you are worthwhile, and it is all for his mission and glory, then it is basic, it's assumed, it's automatic, and you look into the eyes of someone who has value and dignity not based on their performance in this world or their ability to contribute to the economics of the world, but rather their value and their, their dignity is based because you look at them and they are mirroring the image of God straight into your face. Because God, the most valuable being, glorious being, looks at you in the eyes of your neighbor. And they are valuable. Otherwise, the argument of equality is based on performance. It's like uh, Lizzo championing positive body image by dressing provocatively. It just doesn't make sense. I don't think that's helping you, you can't promote positive body image by making your body into an object to be oogled. Okay? So you can't fight for feminism while then basing your equality to be like men. It's like you shout at some action as being sexist and unjust and you have no basis. You can't, tell, can't call something sexist without having a vision or equ- for equality of male and female based on the intrinsic value and dignity based on being made in the image of God. Without it, you're just calling it names. You just say, oh, that's sexist. Well, to who? You understand? It isn't an argument. You say, oh, that's patriarchal. I love this. You know, uh, I used to work with Wash U students, and their favorite word was, that's patriarchal. It's patriarchy. And they, they would just like lob that as if it was an argument. I'm like, and? They're like, Christianity, patriarchal. And I'm like, you just called it a name. You did not give me an argument. And then they're like, oh, well, 
you know, Wash U. I mean, these are kids who are like national merit finalists, every one of them. I, I had a college Jeopardy like finalist on the championship in our movement. I con- I'm in contact with them regularly. We chat back and forth. It's a lot of fun. But that's the arguments that they would make. They would just call it a name. Like the Bible. Ah, regressive. I'm like, all right, show me how. They didn't, have a, they didn't have an answer back for it. You see, you can't call something sexist without having a vision for equality. And what's that based on? And generally, if it's intrinsically based, based on just the fact that you were born as male and female, that you're valuable, where did that come from? It's from the Bible. Just heads up. And so they want to saw off the Bible while trying to stand on the limb of the Bible. You do that, that is very poor. I'm sorry, evolution can't give you a, uh, a reason for me to value women as just as men, just as much as men. Sorry, it can't. You know, and so, what does a church do? So a church needs to understand that, that women, they have gifts and talents, and we need to employ them into the mission. And one of the ways that we're going to do that at Grace and Peace is something called the Women's Leadership Council. And so these are women, at this time, they are appointed uh, to help lead. In the future, they will be nominated, and so they will help guide all discipleship for women. They will also be in all of our session meetings, which are for like our elders, when our elders get together, they are going to be there to give us a voice, to give, a, give, them, give us their voice, so that we may hear the needs of what's going on with women in our church. We need also, we will be changing a few things where women will be more front and center so that you would know who are leading, because they have gifts talents that contribute to this church. And so we'll be doing some of those things. Uh, The modern view of marriage, though, according to the modern way, isn't any better either. Moderns view marriage as a partnership between friends that make each other the best version of themselves. Now, I have seen y'all's Instagram accounts where you're clapping high fives like, married my best friend. That's good. I'm glad you married your best friend. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? You know, and so this person is just kind of guidance so that you can get, the, get to the best version of yourself, you know, and, and the, here's the problem. It's kind of selfish, isn't it? Then the other person exists for me, like in order that I may express myself. So do you know what you end up doing? You always use the person to affirm you, to make yourself feel better, and then whenever that other person doesn't make you feel better, you're like, eh, toxic. And you want to get rid of them. You know, maybe that, God forbid that your spouse would ever say anything like, uh, honey, I think that's very unhealthy for you while I'm eating a giant bag of Cheetos, flaming Hot Cheetos, and I hide them underneath the, the car seat. She's like, I don't think that's very healthy. Who are you? I'm living my best life now. <laughs> Just let me eat. You know, but here's the thing. It's very egotistical for me to say, you can't do that. You exist to serve me. Like, make me feel better. The funny thing is, that's a real story, y'all. Uh, <laughs> I, am, I am messed up. Um, you know, and, and so their story, the modern version, is that it is each to be used by the other. 
each is to be used by the other. So today the romantic partner exists to help you authentically express yourself, for you to become your best self. Therefore, since marriage and sex is just an avenue for, sec- sec- for self-expression, then it doesn't matter the gender of the partners. If that's your overarching story, then it doesn't really matter about the gender of the partners. But the problem with, being, uh, with, with having a moral standard in the standard of consent in this sense, is that it opens up for a myriad of expression depending on your view of consent. Well, who can consent? Or what can consent? And so the line is always moving. So the moral line is always changing based on who or what, or depending on the time period. You know, who are the arbiters of this acceptable marriage? Well, it's because I feel like it. So do you think the ego or yourself is a really good arbiter to tell me whether or not this is a valid marriage and that this is good? Or what about the expression, love is love? You've heard that. Um, mostly because I'm a philosophy nerd, I, I get really irritate, irritated at it. I'm like, that's a circular argument. Like a newspaper is a newspaper. Yeah, cool. All right. Like you didn't prove anything. It's a circular argument. You know, it is a statement based on the basicness of love. It says, oh, love is basic. Everyone knows that. Do they really? Do they really know that is love that basic? And so, who could be in the marriage? Who, can, who could do this? So rather, our text expresses a better way. It expresses that it is each for the other. Notice it starts with, the, this is not good. That man should be alone. And so what was the answer to it is another human being to live in companionship with them, with him, so that he may accomplish his mission. So hear this. Marriage exists for mission, God's mission, not so that the man could accomplish his mission so that she's some sort of gift add-on, some sort of object for him. No. They exist together for mission. They are co-heirs and they are co-laborers. Therefore, it is vital for Christian marriage to be one male, one female in a covenant relationship because sexual love in marriage of the two different sexes is the joining together of male and female in their joining together points points to the joining of heaven and earth. It points to the joining of God and humanity and you can't do that out of sameness. You can only express that through difference coming together. And then we see this confirmed in the nature of bringing forth life. Not from two sames, but from two complementary equals, asymmetrical equals. Therefore, marriage is one male, one female in a covenant relationship. And this forms the basic moral basis for marriage that allows Christians to say yes or no. Good or bad, holy or fallen. It allows us to grieve, allows us to feast, allows us to confirm what is good. So according to the modernist, a woman is worth, is worth however much she can perform or prove herself. The Bible says, nah, she's worthy and valuable because God approves of her from the time she is in his image. The modernist says marriage is a relationship to express the self. The Bible says the marriage is a relationship to deny the self and live for the other, for the glory of God. And so someone's saying, okay, Vince, so do we go back? 
Do we, do we just kind of like live backwards then? Like, is it then we have to, re, you know, is it regressive? You know, and I'm going to say no, because that's just the traditionalist way. The traditionalist wonders what happened to the good old days when women stayed home and cooked in their aprons and cleaned and raised kids. And this view is based on nostalgia. You know, there was a time and a context where that was appropriate, especially when we were growing out of agrarian societies where we needed a home manager. There was no way for that to actually happen. And so we started to grow and things started to change. But when a woman's value is determined by her ability to cook and clean and please her husband, then we might have a problem, y'all. The traditionalist evaluates whether a person is good or valuable based on her home skills. Notice that this isn't really different from the modernist. It's the same problem. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. What was the old boss? A woman was valuable on whether or not she could rear kids while stirring the pot. The value of a person, though, is based on performance in the traditionalist way as well. So without thinking of it, we've made women as objects. You know, and this view can be reinforced by certain views of the Bible. Some might see that in our text that the woman is she's just a gift for the man. Just a gift for him. Oh, poor man. Here's a gift. A woman. What? And sometimes that is the way it is communicated. As if she's like not even a human. It's like she's a robot, like a Stepford wife, straight up. Just like, like here's your perfect wife. You know? And that isn't the way it is, is it? You know, she's, she's only an object if she's just a gift. But the text seems to point to the fact that she doesn't exist to satisfy the man. So she is a gift, she's glorious, she's valuable, but she stands in her own right. You know, she stands to glorify God and help him and to execute God's mission. Because the man could not do it by himself. The story stops with the woman satis- you know, uh, satisfying the man saying, yes, this at last is good. But if you stop with the story as woman just being a gift to satisfy the man and not for mission, you have the rich breeding ground for the things such as uh, sex trafficking and pornography. Women are then objectified based on their ability or looks. We used to have a joke about a particular major at New Mexico State University. It was like family and consumer sciences. We abbreviated it like, oh, you're getting your MRS. That's, that's the way we used to do it. It's home economics. You guys, okay. <laughs> MRS, misses. Boom. There you go, just in case you missed it. The traditionalist view wants to apply a particular cultural expression onto every situation. Cooking, cleaning. In these, those were the case of a primarily an agrarian society, but they take this agrarian society and move it into every other place. You know, so we're moving into a time that's less agrarian and technology has freed up women to do other things so much so that even now husbands can be the one who stay at home and that can be a good thing. But if the woman exists and is valuable because of God and his mission, then she has value and worth independent of the man and independent of her performance in the home. How does the church offer a better way? Well, we can call out things such as porn and the objectification of women. We can remember that that's someone's daughter, someone's child, someone's friend. 
We begin by looking at the women of this church as co-heirs, co-laborers in the kingdom and mission of God. Without them, God's mission doesn't go forward. They're co-recipients. The traditionalist way for marriage was to have an arrangement, an agreement to secure sexual union. Often it was more economics and tradition than anything else. It is what one did on the way to becoming economically independent or living the American dream. It was just another step in adulthood. But the Bible describes the the immense pleasure of seeing at last one that was fit and equal when he declares, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Without that equality... And his rejoicing over her. We don't have this amazing marriage, do we? We have one that just serves kind of the economics of the time. Rather, you see him taking pleasure in the marriage. But then what's the Bible's way? The Bible presents woman as a helper. She was the solution to the not good in the text. It opens up in verse 18. It is not good in contrast to what we saw in chapter 1 where it was kept saying good, very good. A helper in the Bible is often used as a military aid or even a savior. It is attached most to God. And so when it says a helper fit for him, there was not one found fit for him. A helper. We remember Psalm 121 where it says, My help comes from the Lord. Or Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you, the Lord says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will help you. So helper often is attached to God. The man has a responsibility to God as representative. He will have to answer to God, but he will not do it alone. He will have a teammate for the mission. As God created the man to be a gift to the creation, so God creates the woman as a gracious gift to be a co-heir and co-laborer in the garden. So there's companionship in the mission. Uh, Notice, though, it is not marriage as God's answer for his loneliness. It was companionship. It was someone else he could talk to and have a relationship with. And so marriage may not be the answer for your loneliness. Nor may it be the answer for your sexual sin. God gave a person for loneliness, not marriage. So between men and women, we see there is equality and value and dignity. We are co-image bearers, co-laborers, co-heirs for the sake of God's mission. But we, in gender and sexuality, are also complementary or asymmetrical for the sake of mission, for, in our roles, abilities, gifts, talents. And this is not accidental. Your gender matters. And so we see the equality of male and female for side-by-side mission. Notice it says that, he was, that she was taken out of the rib. Out of the rib. And then if you look at the names, like she shall be called woman, which is Ishab, for she was taken out of the man, the Ish, notice that the root letters are the same. 
There's equality that he's trying to get at. And then he says, this at last is bone according to my bone, is the way it is, or flesh according to my flesh. So he reaffirms that she has dignity, value, and worth. But notice that she was not taken out of the ground, but she was taken out of the side of Adam. There's radical equality for side-by-side work in the sake of mission. So men of the church need women. God's mission doesn't go forward without women. But then there's also the face-to-face for the sake of mission. There are complementary pairs. She corresponds to him, and logically, you're like, sexually, that makes sense. Yes, and when these two come together, these asymmetrical pairs, these complementary pairs, that is how we get life face-to-face. But notice what it says. God brings them together in marriage in the face-to-face, and the man says... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Which, this, okay, here, this this is kind of nice. I know this is is literature and different things like that. That's cool. But when a man breaks out in poetry, you wonder what in the world he was seeing, okay? And so, that was just kind of cool. Like, but this is the first kind of poetry that we actually see in the text. Ever. He sees her and he bursts out into song. He was pleased. He was happy to see her. And then it says this, which was a formula in which Jesus himself would use as the formula for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God put some face to face for the sake of mission and to not just to multiply, but for the sake of nourishing and encouraging one another. And this is the interesting thing. The man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. Not ashamed. They, there was no cover-ups. There was nothing to divide them, to push them away from each other. Marriage was given to humanity for the sake of mission. It is a relationship protected and ordained by God. And so there are rules and consequences. It is a covenant. And notice this formula. The man and the woman shall leave father and mother and hold fast together. Same words are used of God that he holds fast to you and to his covenant. And you're encouraged to hold fast to the covenant with God is what, it, what is often said. And sex is the sign of their covenant commitment to one another. The two shall become one flesh, naked and not in shame. With sex, you're doing with your body what you should have only done if you vowed with your whole person. Sex is such a powerful thing, it needs to be protected by a covenant relationship. Even in bed, this maxim will hold true. It is each for the other for the glory of God. Marriage, then... Images God and his church. God's people are called to be his bride according to scripture. God the Father has a bride for his son, Christ. So how much is a woman worth? According to scripture, she is worth the death of the son of God. What is marriage for? To show the unconditional, unstopping, unending, always and forever love of God. And many of us struggle with shame. 
You know, you get to that point, like they were both naked and not ashamed, but most of us feel this shame. Most of us feel unwanted. Most of us feel unnoticed. Most of us feel uncherished. And so we are never naked. No, we cover ourselves up. So that we don't ever feel undervalued. We don't ever feel exposed. And so we put the makeup on. We put the clothes on. In order that and we, we put on performance. We put on our, you know, how much we can make economically. And this was whether it be at home or at work. We make ourselves acceptable. But our text talks about being naked and ashamed. No cover-ups. Just being accepted. Tim Keller writes to be loved. And not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully loved and to be fully known is a lot like being in relationship with God. Uh, I have the great pleasure of officiating weddings. I love weddings. And one of the things that I get to see is this expression of being fully known and fully loved. And what does it look like on the face of each person in the marriage? When the doors open up and the bride starts to come down, I take a peek over my left shoulder to see the goofy, stupid grin on a husband on a, on a groom's face. He looks upon her and then immediately wells up with tears of joy. It makes very little sense unless it's pointing to something greater. I mean, think about it. He knows everything about this woman. He knows exactly what it's going to cost him to be in a relationship with this woman. And he starts crying out of pleasure and joy about being united to her. That is love so strong, so beautiful, that will cover up any sin or offense that person has against them. That is love so strong, that you could be naked and unashamed. Where do we get a hint of that kind of love? And it is only on the cross because there we see our shame. He was the one who was naked and they pulled out his beard. He died a shameful death. Jesus is the one who became worthless. They took all his belongings Jesus is the one who became our guilt and sin and and he died as a rebel in our place. His is the love that overcomes all of your sin, your guilt and shame that impedes you from ever being known by anybody else, from ever really showing yourself to anybody. His is the love that is so strong that can remind you of how valuable and wonderful you are, that you are actually made in the image of God and how worthy and how beautiful and how special are you? You are worthy to die for. And that gives us our worth. You are to die for. Have you ever looked in the mirror and realized and let it hit you in the heart that you are to die for, not just by another person, but by the God of the universe? And women who, so many of them, are not even worthy of an education overseas, they are to die for. On the cross, Jesus is proposing to his church, Will you have him? Will you let his love for you cover up all your sin and shame? And maybe I need to do some, some of that this week. 
I need to look in the mirror. The Bible and the gospel says that I'm to die for? The God of the universe? I mean, it's really good for me to say it to you guys. You know, that's one thing. But the amount of times that I, I just struggle with the shame and feeling deflated and devalued and unworthy, maybe I need to do that this week. So what is a woman worth? She's worth dying for. What is marriage for? The expression of, lo- of the love of God through self-denial. And that's what this text frames the rest of the Bible for and shows this undying love of God for his people which comes to a climax in the person of Jesus Christ. He looks at his people. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He wants you. He loves you. He notices you. He chooses you. You are his. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, you, are, you love us with an un, unstoppable love that smashes all of our sin and our guilt. Lord, you are good. And Lord, we want to follow you. And Lord, we need the strength to follow you. But Lord, let us get a taste of how you value and love your people and that your eye on us is what gives us value and worth. It's what strengthens us. And it is stronger than sin. It is stronger than death because we know that you rose again and nothing can keep you apart from us. What can separate us from your love? Nothing, not even death. Lord, help us to beat it into our heads this week. Punch it into our hearts by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be active in mission this week. And Lord, as we come to your table, I pray that you would nourish us in faith. Transform us now and encourage us for the work of your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.